0: Aliona Chlivka is a uh, managing director at the Henry Jackson Society and advisory council member at the Coalition for Global Prosperity. Aliona is a former Ukrainian MP and a regular contributor to the Russian and Eurasia program at Chatham House, as well as Monocle 24 CapEx and is a TEDx speaker and uh, formerly was a guest lecturer and senior consultant at Atticus Partners. Welcome to the Silicon Curtain Podcast. If you enjoy the material we create, and of course, our fantastic guests, please do like and subscribe. It really does help people to find the videos. Uh, do consider becoming a patron to support our work or buy me a coffee. Aliona, I'm delighted to welcome you back uh, for the second time to the channel. Thank you,
1: Jonathan. It's great to be back.
0: And you you have some news. I mean, not everybody in the audience will necessarily. Of, of, uh of heard of the organization of which you're managing director, but it is extremely well known for those who are interested in geopolitics, the Henry Jackson Society. So what motivated you to take it over? What are your challenges and what are you uh, hoping to, to achieve uh, through the vehicle of that society?
1: Thank you, Jonathan. Um, Henry Jackson Society is a think tank based in Westminster, London. Its main focus is uh, security, foreign policy, and defense. Um, and indeed, it, it is a long-standing name in the industry uh, where this think tank has challenged um, status quo on many issues and has actually brought to the surface many problematic matters that maybe not every thought leadership institution would dare to go near. um, So we don't shy away from topics um, like radicalization, social cohesion, all the issues uh, that have to do with securities internally, domestically. And then of course, the the rise of authoritarianism and and geopolitical threats in the world. Um, I think Henry Jackson Society was one of the first um, institutions in London who identified that Russia is a threat. Uh, when world still tries to normalize the relationships, that China is a rising threat. And we can see how in the last two years, many governments have actually put that top of their agenda um, as something to look into. And of course, um, Middle East was always uh, something that Asia has looked into. Uh, What inspired me to join, I think, is exactly the situation that we are globally now in the world. I, of course, am Ukrainian, and the war in Ukraine has been raging for nine years now, and the full-scale invasion for 19 months. Um, So, of course, this topic came very close to my heart, but I think it's also very important to look at the global transformations that the world is going through now. Um, Perhaps it was triggered by the war in Ukraine, but I think those were all the underlying issues of one um, stage of international world order inevitably coming to an end, uh, the one that was established after the Second World War. And it was certainly time with all the rapidly developing technologies and new dynamics in the world and um, new risks and threats like, uh, for example, even viruses that we've seen taking over the world and stopping everything um, hence the the risk and threat of biological weapons chemical weapons cyber threats weaponization of everything that's what we've really seen develop and expand tremendously in the world um, weaponization of migrants energy uh, chain supply really whatever you can think of the malign states can use that to go against liberal democracies in the world So I think at this time, when we come to a pinnacle point of forming the new world order and actually putting in the precautions uh, for all the arising threats and finding new ways to navigate this new environment and to actually still make liberal democracies leaders of this world, making sure that there's still strong political leadership in the world. I think that's what, in a nutshell, inspired me. And um, I felt very deeply privileged uh, to come in as a managing director of such a brilliant organisation who works on such important issues at this time.
0: And with the war in Ukraine, I mean, prior to the full-scale war, I think there was a tendency to see threats as local and dispersed. You've got Iran over here, you've got Russia over there, you've got China here, you've got various different um, theatres of risk, as it were. Um, are we finally starting to see uh, connections between them and i've heard the phrase used a sort of axis of authoritarianism or an axis of countries that disregard rule of law etc uh are we are we started to realize that that this is this is more of a i mean to call it a civilizational threat i think is is perhaps too simplistic but it's very much a clash of different business models isn't it you have the authoritarian Non-rules based on the one side. uh, And you have our system, which, with some exceptions, you know, it's not perfect, but it certainly aspires to uh, to work within uh, a legal framework and to expand freedoms rather than uh, restrict them.
1: An axis of evil is the term I've heard quite a lot in the last two weeks at the very least ever since the start of Israel-Hamas war, uh, where people were asking me all the time, do you think that Russia and Iran are actually in cahoots in this war and what's the relation of China and everything else? Indeed, I think the world is actually moving in quite a recognizable pattern and this should not have come as a surprise. If you look at history and the waves of history, how... Things evolved, we can kind of see a pendulum swinging. So, we went into the First and Second World War at the beginning of last century. It was quite a brutal, bloodshed moment of, of our history where we've learned our lessons. So, we went all the way to another side of pacifism, of trying to establish international dialogue, create platforms where actually democracy and protection of human rights became top of the agenda. Um, And then I think inevitably, perhaps some countries got very confident and very comfortable in knowing that, well, all the issues of the world have been solved. Um, Whereas at the same time, many other actors felt like that gave them breathing space and lack of checks uh, from countries that were actually responsible for upholding that international world order. Um, they got a, a blank check to, to go and pursue their agenda, to perhaps start with very small limits um, of human rights, freedom and liberalism in their countries and eventually spread it. Because every time they don't see repercussions for bad actions, they get the knowledge or the impression that that's okay uh, to continue in that way. As that perception grew, many of those countries... Perpetuated that with growing economic strength, uh, with being the number one source of a specific um resource that liberal democracies of this world rely on, or um, that most of the world relies on. And that gave them enormous leverage and economic power. Um, over the not just over economies and the financial flows of the world, but also inevitably geopolitics, macroeconomics are now ruling the world, and we can see how macroeconomics draws also political regimes and ideologies and, and major at least attempts to make geopolitical shifts, not necessarily successful ones. Um, so when I talk about that, look, look at, um, of course, Iran with trying to continue their agenda of being leader regionally and trying to attain nuclear weapons and become that strong force in Middle East. And I think even supplying Russia with drones, uh, who then used it to kill innocent Ukrainian civilians, they still tried to portray themselves as power that matters. The same goes to China, who grew tremendously economically and only stopped with COVID um some people say china has peaked or yet yeah, to see that of course it will the trajectory for growth will never be the same for china but it still maintains quite a lot of sources for supply chains globally um and other countries of course russia was the main energy supply for most of the world and we have now seen them use that against the world world's weapon and eventually the world trying to to wane off of that so i think the world is learning its lessons but certainly Countries who have A, economic resource, and B, malign intentions in the world to still um, divide and rule and conquer, Um, they definitely tried to bring back the clash of civilizations 2.0, which I think has not gone as successfully as they have hoped.
0: And Ukraine is at a pivotal point in that. I mean, people... Um, in the media, we'll tend to focus perhaps on the more shallow day-to-day, uh, you know, what's going on. But if you look at it at a deeper level, Ukraine has been moving from that Russian world business model uh, of extraction industries, mafia corruption, informal relationships, deep, deep nepotism, and and all those characteristics that that, that we know of the Russian world. It, including, of course, coercion, intimidation, violence, assassination, all these kinds of things. Ukraine has been trying to shake that off and de-russify itself. In that process had multiple revolutions, but also developed techniques and processes and institutions um, and and even education that accelerates that process and and, and provides tools to tackling all of those things. So my question here is, um, is, well, firstly, is that accurate, but also um, what can and should we be learning both societies that are in transition uh, towards a more democratic uh, way of, of, of governance, but also, you know, traditional societies like the US and the UK, where some of those traditional norms of uh, democratic consensus seem to be breaking down. What could we be learning from Ukraine's experience?
1: Um, first of all, Jonathan, yes, you're completely right in understanding what Ukraine had to tackle in the 90s and perhaps early 2000s. I was part of that young generation who actually went on a, on an attempt uh, to change the society. Um, when I was first-year student of the university, the Orange Revolution broke out, as we discussed previously, and then 10 years later. It was the revolution of dignity, and within those 10 years, which were my whole 20s and all of the span of my political career, I witnessed that it is a very hard battle to fight. And, you know, it's almost one step forward, two steps back. And I have experienced myself the political persecutions and uh, threats. and. Coercion and intimidation into voting for certain decisions. When I was an MP, that I wasn't comfortable with, I've seen corruption play out in front of me. And people who are most corrupt would never normally go to jail. It was it was always the people who refused uh, to get involved into corruption who would stand up and go on the barricades during the revolutions, and you know, uh, cause. Many damages as, as part of the mass protests, and they were the ones who would get arrested. And eventually, unfortunately, in 2014, we've seen the first bloodshed uh, with people getting shot by then pro-Russian special forces um, in the center of European capital, which I think was one of the most tragic moments of my life, having witnessed that um, when I was 27. Um, it was a very it, it's a tough history, um, Jonathan. And you're right, it's being exported. I think it was the, the common illness of Soviet Union. And I would probably compare it to cancer when it spreads into all of your tissues slowly but surely and takes over and paralyzes your whole body from functioning normally. And it's equally as difficult to get rid of it as it is of cancer. Because when every single fabric in your society has probably got those affected tissues and you don't quite know whether they've been hit by the general radiation of your anti-corruption efforts or whether something needs to be cut out completely and you don't know whether it's going to regrow or not. That's the struggle that Ukraine had to go through. Luckily, I think slowly but surely, but having paid really big price for that and still paying for it, Um, we are slowly but surely getting rid of it. The process started, as I said, in 2004, in 2014, when people went out onto the peaceful process pr- protest, and then eventually it resulted into bloodshed. I think that was another watershed moment for Ukrainian society when they decided that they will not tolerate corrupt authorities. And now during the war, when so many people have volunteered and united behind uh, President Zelensky and his government, just to fight off. Uh, this invasion that inevitably just wants to eliminate Ukrainians as as a nation. Corruption simply is not and will not be tolerated or forgiven in any way, the way that perhaps it was in the 90s and and early 2000s. Um, We can see big efforts made by the government at the moment to eliminate every single body um, that's been implicated in corruption. We see investigations into the Ministry of Defense. We saw uh, the head of the Supreme Court for the first time in history of Ukraine, maybe even the world, uh, getting arrested for corruption. And that, and those cases being extremely public. So Ukraine is not trying, there is of course a risk that you know the Western partners will see that there's so much corruption going on that they will perhaps stop The aid, but Ukraine is going on that big adventure, I would say, trying to fight the war at the same time as sort out its internal processes and affairs. And there's inevitably reputational damage, but it's still being as open and transparent as it can be. When it comes to the Western societies, it's something they can learn from Ukraine. I think number one, as you rightly said, Russia. Soviet Union inherently, but then Russia, who completely took over all of the legacy of Soviet Union, including complete corruption, of course tried to bring those methods of influence to the West. And we've seen them play out in the West quite effectively. Uh, We saw former German chancellors still working for Russian bodies and advocating for them. We saw former French politicians also advocating for Russia, even during the second full-scale invasion. Um, And, of course, we saw a lot of illicit Russian money in London um, in the form of estates and assets of oligarchs. Uh, Luckily, I think London has learned its lessons and it went on this massive crackdown of all the Russian state property. The only problem now is to actually finish the deal and figure out a process of how to seize those frozen assets and pass them on to Ukraine, because I think that's one country who deserves to have those assets, if not for reconstruction, because we don't really know when that will be coming our way, but more so even for defense, um, with the lack of defense and, and weaponry that Ukraine is receiving, we could certainly use that now to equip our army. Um, the number one lesson to sum it up, um, Jonathan, for both Ukraine and for the Western countries coming from this is, democracy is invaluable to peace in the world. Um, but democracy is, of course, being just because there are so many plural voices um, in the society, it can get disruptive because democracy sometimes is being used to turn that into chaos. Um, we need to make our democracies resilient. Uh, while we give the floor and the platform for everyone to speak up, there also needs to be accountability. An enormous responsibility on the shoulders of those politicians who make loud statements who might potentially disrupt global events and risk losing lives at this quite volatile environment. Every single word said by American politician or UK politician, it affects the war theater, for example, in the ground in Ukraine. I'm sure that it affects the situation in Israel or anywhere else in the world. So one thing I would like Western democracies to be is slightly more responsible and understand that every single word carries consequences.
0: And what we've learned or what some of us have learned is that Russia will weaponize absolutely everything. So, as you say... Um, they will try to find the sort of ways in which they can divide us. They'll find the missteps and mistakes and weaknesses of our politicians and media, and they'll try to turn those against us. Um, and that is something that Ukraine is constantly fighting against. You know, that fight uh, never goes away. So what do you understand then about um, Russian world, Ruski Mir? What is it? What are its characteristics? And Ukraine is very, uh, Ukrainians rather, have been very patiently trying to explain to us for a number of years now uh, what it is and how malignant it is. What are the crucial things we need to understand about this entity called uh, Ruskimir?
1: I must admit, Jonathan, that over the last few years, my understanding of Ruskimir has somewhat fractured uh, because obviously having grown up in post-Soviet Ukraine, Um, and living with Russia next door and seeing some of the traditions that we've inherited from them being under their statehood and then decoupling from that statehood and developing our own democratic tradition, which I think came so naturally for Ukraine. Because going back to Kievan Rus and the founding of the first Ukrainian state, um, which was founded by Vikings and who brought that tradition, and then we always had democracy in on ukrainian soil even when we were part of empire you can look back to our first constitution of philip or or or, you know the way cossacks lived that was the first really autonomous democratic republic and and the first attempts of independence in 1919 the first president that we got mihailo hushevsky we were a democracy way before they heard about it in 1991. um and perhaps maybe that's also determined geographically because they're comprised of of so many various ethnicities and nations that didn't really have the democratic tradition, whereas us being closer to Europe, being part of European empires and having that democratic tradition on our soil, we were always quite different. Um, So I think it's a a perceived notion in Ukraine that we were always more freedom loving. Um, We were more, well, I, I think Ukrainians, do consider themselves a bit more warm and open to the world, rather than being closed off and always very defensive. Um, And we always wanted to be a part of um, the world that respects human rights um, because there was this individualism in Ukrainian society. Whereas in Russia, it was always more um, top-bottom approach where whatever the governments decided, the masses need to perform, to report back, Um, and to stay as quiet and and as low as as possible, otherwise you get in trouble. Um, I think Ukrainians have canceled that notion as soon as early 2000s when, well, we've decided why, um, if every single one of us has a voice and has agency. Um, So that was the main difference. In the last two years, I'm not quite sure what actually is left of Russia. Uh, I'm not quite sure what the society is made of, what's the fabric, what's the soul, what's the thinking of that society, because uh, I, it's hard for me to tell who's left there. When I see occasional social calls about their attitudes towards the war in Ukraine, it, it of course, is heartbreaking, albeit not surprising at all, because they still all in vast majority to support going and killing off Ukrainians because we don't deserve a statehood or... Uh, being influenced by various narratives that have been embedded into their consciousness. They're just full of hatred still. Um, But who are those people? How many of them are left there? Because we've seen an exodus of intelligentsia a long time ago. They're all here in the West. We've seen the exodus of Russian opposition, who's also spread out across Europe, who still talks to me quite regularly. And of course, they have their own ideas of, um, everything that's going on in the world but they also have zero agency and I don't see them having any strong determination or a plan of what to do with their state so they fled the country it, as as we say they complain from afar which is a good t- thing to to raise awareness and to talk about everything that's going on back home but what is your actual plan what are you doing to get your country back I think again um. Tremendously lacking that agency from all the Russians who I know be in the country or outside. Um, And that's something, that's an area where Ukrainians and Russians are very different.
0: This leads absolutely perfectly into a question I wanted to ask. Um, It's almost as if you're reading my mind, Alena. But I went to an event the other day uh, where Mikhail was was speaking. Uh, I mean, it's notable he never speaks in, in English. I think he, he doesn't feel confident in English. So perhaps the full richness of his thoughts aren't being uh, translated because they need to keep it quite simple. So I bought his book and I've decided to read his book. Um, I think it's called How to Slay mm. a Dragon from the uh, Evgeny Schwartz um, uh, sort of story or povist. Um, and he lays out his version of how to take back the state and there's a couple of things i mean we don't have time to go into the detail i'm going to be making videos on the detail of why i think a lot of it is is misguided or 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 fails to understand what kind of a dragon he's fighting the most significant aspect and i'm really interested from from your ukrainian perspective to hear this when i listen to maxim Katz, when i listen to khodorkovsky and the navalny team and so on no matter how Well, packaged up their ideas are, no matter how slick the media presentation, there's one thing that is absent. And that is specific examples, and especially examples taken from a country that's actually been fighting the homo sovieticus, the mindset. And that's Ukraine. Ukraine that has developed techniques. Ukraine that's had multiple revolutions, experiments in freedom, some of which worked, some of which didn't. I have never heard a single Russian oppositionist quote an event, a technique, or an experience from Ukraine and discuss how that could be applied to Russia. They always emphasize that they are different and they need to find a different way. To me, that's just You know, that's just a repackaging of medieval exceptionalism, Soviet exceptionalism, czarist exceptionalism, uh, and it's deeply concerning. I'd love to hear what you think of that.
1: I think, unfortunately, imperialism, uh, and that's that same exceptionalism that you're talking about, it's deeply embedded within Russian psyche, inevitably, because they were always a title nation. Throughout history, ever since they separated themselves from Kiev and Rus and, and they were under <laughs> Kiev rule, under Ukrainian rule. Um, ever since then, being taking over Mongols and trying to form their own statehood, um, they were always the colonizers rather than the other way around. And I think inevitably through generations that just settled in. And that's the perception that perhaps they themselves don't notice. I can understand that uh, the relations and dynamics between Ukrainians and Russians are tense. And I'm not going to, of course, go into um, saying why Ukrainians are upset with Russians. Um, I think that's quite obvious, but I can also see the point of view of Russians. Ukrainians have been so heartbroken and it took every fiber of our soul to mobilize ourselves and to put up this united strong front against Russians. And trust me when I say that it took every single energy and muscle in our hearts and in our souls that we had to withstand this attack for nine years now and 19 months especially. Um, that, of course, it inevitably resulted in in less than friendly attitude towards Russia. And even those opposition leaders who were fleeing Russia, and who were stopping in Ukraine and trying to function from Ukraine, they didn't get the warmest reception. And you know, there was a debate in Ukraine, perhaps last year, is there such a good is there such a thing as a good Russian? Do they even exist as the opposition? actually, is the opposition on our side, or are they only on the side of taking over power but still not recognizing all the mistakes and that imperialistic treatment that they have towards Russia? And inevitably, I know that most of the opposition, just very few, are are still in Ukraine, the ones who actually, I think, recognize and are on that side of the argument that... You know we need to stand with Ukraine, help them win this war, and then go sort out our country, pay reparations, and ask for forgiveness. There's still a lot of liberal Russian opposition leaders who don't think that they owe Ukraine anything, and that is deeply troubling to hear and to see. And I hope if they don't understand it through compassion, and if there's lack of self-awareness to see that they've actually also responsible. I'm not going to say that they're guilty. Of all the murders in ukraine but they are responsible because they are russians um so they have we inevitably have to take responsibility for everything that's going on in our country i was a ukrainian politician for 13 years and i was the one who was being politically persecuted um, i almost got sacked from so many jobs i went to interrogations in the police i was investigated there were you know attempts to announce treason on me etc for not getting engaged in corruption, for not supporting the high-level corruption. I would do that, and yet now when I'm here in the West and I'm getting questioned and quizzed about corruption in Ukraine, I respond as a Ukrainian who was part of that system. I take full responsibility that that is something that was inherently imposed onto my country, and that is something we're trying to fight. I'm not saying, well, yeah, it was them, but it was me. So I think Russians need to own up to that and that will inevitably come with a sense of growing and being adults i think russians have a lot of growing up to do taking that responsibility and only then they will be actually able to change their country
0: and you mention uh i think a very interesting word um within that explanation and that is trust um now clearly there is not trust everywhere at all times uh even now um trust between Uh, Ukrainian people and its government is 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 I would say it's provisional upon the government uh, respecting or reflecting the views of the majority. And that trust will will vanish the minute the government diverges from 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 what the the majority of people sort of want and their direction. But this is one of the key problems, is it not? Um, And this is maybe one of the reasons why um, in Ukraine, The revolutions against the sort of Soviet mindset, against sort of Russification have been more successful. And that is because you have more of a a unitary culture. You have trust between people and you have a common understanding of what the objectives are, which is preserving an identity, evolving an identity, and certain sort of values. It seems to me that Russians do not necessarily have trust at a basic level many do not even need it because their industry is much more based on extraction economy, whereas Ukraine, the values of individualism, private property ownership, agriculture, require trust for that economic model to function, whereas Russia's don't. Essentially, the majority of the money comes from digging stuff out of the ground. You don't need sophistication. You don't need to have a, an educated population. You don't need widespread trust to make that economic model work. And this is one of the challenges for the russian opposition i mean people don't trust each other they don't trust the government they don't trust their apparatchiks um and to an extent the opposition also it seems to me by and large many of them do not trust each other either
1: absolutely Uh, i have seen the opposition is very divided um and i've actually seen that same trend play out in ukraine and there is one theory that I have. It's it's not backed by any science, and I have not done much research on that, but just from having lived in Ukraine for 30 years throughout its transformation, um, I've noticed that democratic transformations in Ukraine very slowly move into Russia, where at least we could serve as a temp- template for those. Uh, because we used to be also this highly corrupt, highly... You know, everyone is enclosed within your own house. Don't trust anyone. Don't trust your neighbor. Because back from Soviet days, every single person was instructed to report to KGB if they noticed any suspicious activity. So you never knew whether your neighbor is going to report and the next day you're going to get arrested and sent to Siberia. So don't trust your neighbor. Don't trust your community. Don't trust the authority who's corrupt. And we have moved away from that very slowly we have. At first, I think we started building trust. And one thing that Ukrainians had a good foundation on is family values are very strong. And once you have your family unit, that was the main community that helped you survive. Um, And those were the people who you could trust. And that slowly spread towards perhaps neighborhood, local community, Uh, that sense of being responsible for at least trying to, you know, if, the communal property doesn't work, and if you don't have electricity and water for days, or if the roads just are terrible in your your local area, you can at least come together with the neighbours and fix the road that leads to your three houses. And I think that slow community building started from the grassroots level, and that's why it grew all the way through, you know, surpassing communities, towns, cities, and eventually it resulted into these revolutions. That was the initial community effort of Ukrainian people coming together. And for the longest time, up until 23rd of February, 2022, we had a strong Ukrainian civil society and community on one hand, and we had government and authority on the other. Whereas on the 23rd of February, and and later on, with, with that iconic video, when Zelensky said the president is here, I think that final wall dropped. And that's, I think, is his major contribution to Ukraine's democracy. Fighting this war and being a tremendous leader, corralling international support, all of that will go down in history with him. But the fact that he stayed, the fact that he finally united and he broke the last barrier between the government and the society is something that we, that have changed our nation historically forever. Russians, I think, have tried, they're still on the stage of of building communities and building trust within the small small communities that they have, maybe even on, on family level, because we could see even with conscription and um, there are so many extremely strange conversations that, for example, I've heard recorded by, intercepted by Ukrainian intelligence between the families of the soldiers. When you hear those dynamics, you kind of wondered. Is, is there even a concept of a family in that country at all? So I think they're still very far away, and as soon as they build family trust and then move on to community level, society level, and eventually maybe that last barrier will, will break down, but I'm not sure because again, civilizationally, it's a very different country that has different roots um, historically. and whether they will break that last barrier, who will be there to break it, what's going to be the fabric of Russian society. It's very difficult to tell right now.
0: It's interesting the process you described there, that the the changes in Ukraine are from the bottom up, from smaller units building to ever greater units, You know, localities, municipalities. That process, of course, isn't finished, but it's interesting you say that eventually the top layer has to change because that change has come from below. Is it the case, and this is gonna to lead to a question about why Russia actually started this war, Russia still seems to be locked into this approach of trying to solve problems or not solve problems from the top down. Uh, and people generally throughout that chain waiting until the solution is given to them rather than trying to uh, you know, source that solution themselves and take any agency in their own lives. That to an extent also includes the study of history it includes the study of literature the canonicalization of certain texts and authors and exclusion of others it's much more of an imposed imperial culture which again it might create a superficial unity but as you've described it's not a deep ground up sort of unity it's not organic it's 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 quite brittle um everything you're saying suggests that there's far more fundamental changes that that the Russia needs to undergo. Um, But is this fear of the Ukrainian bottom-up approach to reorganizing society, is this one of the motivating factors behind Putin's war, in fact, the threat that comes from it?
1: Absolutely. Um, The main reason for Putin to lash out um, and I think it only came to him as a result of that fear, the, the idea that he needs to reunify Soviet Union or create a new empire, is because he saw a democracy encroaching. You know, he spread this narrative that NATO was moving too close and expanding, and he felt a military threat. In fact, it's not NATO that he was scared of; it's liberalism and democracy that he was terrified of, because eventually he knew that his whole empire will fall apart. Indeed, if people get contaminated by that spirit of freedom and actually get a taste of what it's like. Yes, you have to endure responsibility for every single action. You actually need to do something for your country. You don't just need to sit there, go to work, being fed the news that you're being fed and, you know, minimum wages that you have and just be happy, stay low, and make sure that no one touches you. You actually have to get out of your comfort zone and Achieve some things not just for yourself but for your family, for your community and for your country. It's a tough process. And that's what he was terrified of. We have seen actually that Ukraine wasn't the first one in that. It really closed at Georgia and the events there. Um Putin invaded Georgia in two thousand and eight. It was a few months after the Bucharest summit in NATO happened where Germany and France with it, agreement from the U.S. uh, said that Ukraine and Georgia will not be NATO members anytime soon. Um, And 2008 was only five years after Georgia had its Revolution of Roses. And that was the first pro-democracy social unrest in the country and the uprising. So he saw, he identified that risk and he needed to shut it down. The same came in Ukraine. In 2004, we had our first Orange Revolution. Where we didn't accept that pro-Russian candidate won presidential elections, um, and we elected another one. He couldn't forgive us that either. So eventually, um, he I think he refocused on Georgia in two thousand eight. Uh, but then when he saw that Ukrainians are still not happy with going towards Russia, and that we overthrew President Yanukovych, who we didn't let become a president in 2004. We overthrew him in 2014, and we finally finished the job. He decided to just invade Crimea as per his mechanism to stall any development of the countries.
0: And the last question, really, is more forward-looking. Uh, and we've seen that Western actions, delivery of munitions has always eventually come through. And attackums is a, is a good example of that. But we had similar fights about F-16s, which are yet to appear. We had the same fights about the leopards and so on. There is a delay, and that delay is often based on bureaucratic inertia, but it's also based on fear of so-called escalation. Russia red lines, even though time after time it has never Actually, take an action when those red lines are, are contravened. Um, so, we are self regulating our behaviors based on what we think is the Russian mindset and reactions. Do you think it is now important for Ukraine to win, not just decisively um, for as long as it takes, but actually to win much faster uh, and at lower cost, certainly in terms of human life?
1: I think that was always our priority and goal, uh, Jonathan, to win, having lost as little lives as possible. And I think that's why Ukraine's approach to defense and now defence was always really tailored. And that's why we don't, we we didn't really achieve all the successes we wanted to achieve on the battlefield because. Ukrainian uh, military authority has decided to take measured steps and not to throw people on the landmines, layers and layers of, of landmines that Russians have laid um, during the spring this year when Ukrainians were expecting and pleading and begging for um, speedy delivery of weapons. Why the West is going down the same route and repeating the same pattern over and over again? first with tanks, then with jets, and now with long-range weapons? I don't know. It's something that I am deeply perplexed about. The only thing I can see when I first I heard narratives, and I try to be very understanding of that, that the world is trying to prevent the Third World War from emerging. I could certainly understand that. Russia is a nuclear power. There's always a risk uh, when you're dealing with a madman with a red button, right? Um, But seeing how the West is reacting to the war in Israel, um, we, of course, as Ukrainians, are so compassionate with that because we know what it's like to be under attack when civilians are getting brutally murdered. And I think we've expressed that clearly. Um, We can see the West, and especially the US, coming to help promptly and intensively. And there is no staggered approach. There is no questioning where, well, does Israel deserve weapons or not? Uh, Are there the area of influence of, uh, I don't know, Iran, or are they not? Sure, Iran doesn't have nuclear weapons now, so maybe the fear of escalation is not that great, but the aircraft carriers of the United States Navy are already there waiting to engage in any kind of warfare. So I think it all comes down eventually to political will and to perceptions in the Western mind. Unfortunately, the deeply embedded perception and belief that Russia perhaps imposed on them That Ukraine still remains attached to the Russian Empire and is that area of influence. And it's very dangerous to go in and support this country, who is the sphere of influence of another bigger actor. Can we just make it clear once and for all that Ukraine is an independent nation, with statehood that goes back in history way before Russia has ever appeared? And that we're now their sphere of influence, we're the biggest country and the most populated and country in the Eastern Europe, the biggest state in Europe that deserves to be a European Union member, that deserves to be in NATO, and that deserves to be safe. Um, and with that, of course, we do rely on Western weapons the most, but I'm sure that as soon as Ukraine wins this war promptly, and I hope next year, uh, I really hope so, with a supply finally of fighter jets and long-range weapons and all the ammunition that, that we need. Um, that we will show how valuable they can be to a part of the Western world and how much we can actually contribute.
0: And this challenge of overcoming that mindset, uh, I think, is going to go on for years and years because once we finally figured out that Ukraine is part of the European family and European history, we need to reset our brains in relation to Belarus, Uh, Georgia and Armenia, civilizations which also uh, predate Muscovy by many centuries.
1: Mm -hmm. Indeed. That's, I think, something, you know, perceptions are not an easy thing to change in the West. But slowly and surely we are doing that. It all goes back to political will. Does the world want to open up and to see all the opportunities that lie with taking these countries in, not just challenges, or will they forever give in to one annoyed defensive bully who sits there just because of its bossness and an arsenal of questionable nuclear weapons? Who knows how effective they even are? Um, we can't let them blackmail the rest of the world. Um, and it's certainly not something that we want to pass on to our children, that state of the world, and that to be the new world order. Um, but I, I have faith, actually, Jonathan. I think that the world has recognized all the mistakes in the, in those perceptions. I hope that they will recognize one final thing, that Ukraine is an independent state and has got agency, and it needs to be accounted for, that agency, and um, that we deserve respect as much as any other independent nation
0: in the world that's a, a fantastically clear statement to end our conversation aliona i'm very very grateful to you for spending the time i know you've got a, a, an incredibly busy and packed day so i really appreciate you uh, making time to speak to me and the audience your message is super crystal clear and i think everyone watching this channel will uh, will will agree with you on that um thank you so much slava ukraine Here
1: i am slava